excited. Like I said, my name is Jason Piffle. I'm on staff here at Crosspoint. I've actually been here about four and a half years, which is crazy to think about that has gone by that quick. It's amazing. Uh, but just so you, for those of you guys that maybe don't know me or my story, I'll give you a little bit of background briefly before we get going here. Uh, I was actually born in a little town in Nebraska, so uh, there's a certain part of me that is a, a mid- Midwesterner, and uh, so I grew up in this town called Columbus, about 18,000 people uh, that nothing ever happened. So you could probably, maybe you came up from a little town and you can relate with that. Uh, about um, after college, uh, maybe a couple years after that, my wife and I moved to Tennessee, uh, where we lived 18 years and never once became Vol fans. Sorry, Hannah Beth. So I'm just kidding. Uh, so, but we lived there 18 years, so we kind of feel like a part of us is Southern, too. So uh, we've lived just as much outside of the Midwest as we've lived, or actually more, in the South than we've lived in Nebraska. But uh, growing me up in Nebraska was, was good. It was a good place to grow up. Uh, I remember as a kid, uh, I don't know, just, just like any kid, you go to school and you want to make friends and all these sort of things happen in your life. But I distinctly remember the, the very first real friends that I ever had. And uh, the guy, the kid in the blue, uh, that his name is Kurt, and uh, which would be funny if he actually heard, listened to the sermon, which I'm sure he won't. But uh, Kurt was one of two best friends I had. Uh, but the other one was a guy, his name was Todd. And these guys, like the three of us, we hung out all the time. So like the first sleepover I had, hanging out with these guys. And for years, a few years after that, like we were just best buds at school. And that really made me feel like I belonged, right? I felt like people accept me. People think, oh, Jason's an all right kind of guy. I guess, I guess I'll be his friend. Uh, those were very important things to me back then. And then something happened, and my friend Todd moved away. Uh, his parents were terrible. And they moved my friend away from me to the next town over. And my mom was awesome because she would try to set up play dates, you know, like, hey, we're going to drive 60 miles away so you can visit your friend Todd. That didn't last long. It just was a very difficult thing. Um, But that was hard for a second grader. That was a difficult thing to try to manage. And then about a year later, uh, I was forced to change schools and start out with a whole new friend group. Very quickly, I latched on to uh, another guy. His name was Aaron, and another guy, his name was Doug. So Aaron and Doug and I and a few other stragglers created a special group, and uh, we didn't have a name for it, but we all bought the hoagie hats. You know, I'm talking with the slant bills that James wears once in a while. So we all ran around school with these little button, with a little button in the front. Is that even what they're called, a hoagie hat? Nobody even knows what they're called. So anyway, you know what I'm talking about. Uh, And that became our identity. That became like we knew we belonged kind of together. And we were friends, like the five of us. So we started listening to the same music. Uh, The first, I think the first cassette that I bought ever in my life was Duran Duran. Okay? You know, Hungry Like a Wolf and all that other stuff. You know, that was like my first big one. We all listened to it. We talked about it. The second one, I'm pretty sure the second one we bought was Michael Jackson Thriller, which is like one of the greatest ever. And I'm like, this group is amazing. This is the best group I've ever had. We will be friends forever. Until we picked cassette number three, which was Culture Club. 
and then it just went downhill from there. Some of you guys are like, culture what? Look it up. You'll see why it was a terrible choice. And so about a year after that, so fifth and sixth grade, I moved on to another school and started making new friends again. And so there's something innately, I think, in all of us that we want to belong to something or somebody, right? It's kind of in who we are. It, like, we're trying to figure out our identity. How do we fit into this world? And then if you fast forward as adults, we try other things, like we, we try athletics or we try sports. So if you've ever been around a, a sports guy, um, and, and occasionally there's the sports girl who's usually with the sports guy who can like rattle off like the stats. And I just, here's, here's what happens. They're like telling me things and I'm just looking at them because I know nothing about what they're talking about. But they'll just go on like, oh, that guy, he's such and such, whatever. And I'm like, oh yeah, I like you. Uh, you know, for other people, it's work. It's, it's uh, going to work. It's working hard. It's moving your way up through the ladder, kind of, uh, and, and rising within the organization, and you spend lots and lots of that time, and that creates this identity for who you are. It might be a house. I got to live in a certain neighborhood or a certain town. It might be marriage. Uh, it might be, hey, I'm married to this person, and as long as I'm married to this person, then I'm good and I belong. For some of us, and I would say a lot of us, it's children. Uh, we can very easily create kids as the center of our universe, and everything else is secondary to our kids, and that becomes our identity, becomes who we are. Maybe it's a social agenda, or for some people, it's politics. I can get sucked into politics pretty quick, but I'm very, very careful about what I say, but a lot of times, that can be the thing. And you understand, it's kind of like what we talk about a lot really becomes the thing that we value or the thing that really, in some senses, can define us. But all of these things really fall short of creating any sort of lasting identity for who we are as people, as people created by a creator. And so if you are a Christian and you're in this room, you understand hopefully this, that as a result of a relationship with Jesus, that our identity is found in something that is now much better than all of the rest of those things. That thing that I was searching for all the way through grade school, I eventually found when I was a 17-year-old that God was the one who defines who I am, and it's him to who I belong. But I searched for a very long time. And eventually found that. And so my identity now is I belong to God. And your identity as a Christian is that you belong to God. You see, adoption, this thing that we're going to talk about this morning, is really an act of God's grace to us. It's this amazing gift that he would decide to pull us into his family. And so it's our identity. It's who you are. The last few weeks, we've been going through this series called Cruciform, and we've been plugging away uh, at kind of different aspects of the cross, which have been great and amazing thing. But this guy, Wayne Grudem, who I really appreciate him, I appreciate his wisdom, I appreciate what he writes, I appreciate his stability as a Christian, his longevity, all these things I appreciate about him. He, he kind of sums up at least a, a few of these weeks like this. He says, 
in regeneration, God gives us new spiritual life within. So this part of regenerating us, this part of moving us from dead in our sin to alive in Jesus is done uh, by God. Okay, right? Second thing, so but in justification, God gives us right legal standing before himself. Okay, so this is legal thing of saying, you should be punished because of your sin, but because of what Jesus did, he's going to take your sin and your punishment for you, and you have been justified. You've been made right legally in the eyes of God. But this week, another legal piece is adoption. Adoption is where God legally makes us part of his family. And so many times, I think, when we think about adoption, we we, and as, as it pertains to our relationship with God, we kind of gloss over it. and We don't really think about what that means and the implications for us. So we're going to unpack that today. Um, I'm going to talk really fast, as fast as I can possibly go, so we can get this done, because there is a million verses. So, but we're not going to do them all. Uh, so let's get started in Galatians chapter 3. Uh, we're going to do a couple, few verses at the end of the chapter and then jump ahead a few verses in chapter 4. They're on the screen behind me. Let me read them to you. Verse 26. For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek there's neither slave nor free. There's, neither, there's no male or female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. And then we're going to jump to four, chapter, uh, verse 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, and you are longer, no longer a slave, but a son, then an heir through God. And so our new identity comes through adoption, but it starts with redemption. Verse 26, I'm going to put up on the screen behind us here. Oops, sorry about that, everybody. You're like, oh, there's a verse behind me. No, there's not. Now there is. Okay, uh, Galatians 3.26, here's what it says. It says, for in Christ you are all sons of God through faith. So redemption is the underlying portions up there on the screen. In Christ through faith, that's redemption. You are sons of God, that's adoption. John 1.12 says, for as many as received him, to them gave the right or the authority to become children of God to those who believe on his name. So the underlying portion, but as many as received him, to those believe, who believe in his name, that's like redemption, the children of God, that's adoption. So just so to kind of, as a little side note here, uh, Paul wants to kind of clear up this idea of sons. Because back in the culture of the day, uh, if you were going to be an heir to your father, you had to be what? Oldest son, right? No exceptions. That was it. So what Paul is trying to communicate in these verses, he's trying to say, you know what? It doesn't matter if you are the oldest son. It doesn't matter if you are a man or a woman or a Jew or a Greek or a slave or free. Under the banner of Jesus, under the banner of adoption, you are an heir. It doesn't matter that you're not the oldest son. 
So he wanted to blow that up, that kind of paradigm. And if you think about the people of the day, that would be a tough one to overcome, I think, historically. So let me continue on here. Uh, Galatians 4, can I continue, or 4.4. 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born of the law, to what? Redeem those who are under the law. And then verse 5b, the last part, says, so that we may receive adoption as sons. So adoption follows redemption. The reason I'm trying to make a big point of this is because uh, so many times we see all these things, all these facets of the cross for the last few weeks as just one thing. But every single one of this is a different angle, right? And every single one of this means these things mean something different. So adoption isn't just something like, okay, redeemed, adopted, done. It's like you've been redeemed, and now this other act comes right alongside of it. Now you've been adopted and placed into the family of God. Let me tell you a story. Uh, there was this couple, and I, I read this story, so I don't know them personally, uh, and their names were Phil and Trish, and they really wanted to adopt a baby boy, or a boy of some kind, actually. So they made a three-trip, three-day trip to Siberia, Russia. Now, I've got a friend, him and his wife have done exactly this, went to somewhere in Russia and adopted a boy and, and, brought them, and brought him back. And so they did this huge trip to Russia uh, to, to hopefully adopt this little boy. And when they got there, the orphanage supervisor brought this excited couple into this big room, okay? And in this room, uh, the workers were shuffling kids in, little boys, row, a couple rows worth of little boys. And they were so excited because they're thinking, this is my chance this might be my chance to be adopted if I can only like, present myself well in front of these people. And so they were really, really excited. But in this same room off to the side was an older boy. And he was sitting there, dejected, his head's down. He's kind of moving his foot on the floor. He's not real hopeful and so Phil asks the supervisor running the orphan, he says, why is that boy standing over there and kind of not with the rest? And the supervisor explained in broken English, this is what they said, when you get to be that age and you've been passed over so many times, you just take it for granted that you're not going to be chosen. And so Trish gently grasped her husband's hand and they looked at each other and at that moment, they knew what they needed to do. And they looked at that boy and they said, we'll take him. That's what God does. That's what he does. He reaches out to us, a sinner in the corner, ashamed, abandoned, unloved, trying to find ways that we can belong, trying to find our identity in things that are not lasting, potentially maybe even without hope of anything better. And God says, I want her. I want him. Some of these people potentially may have thought in their lives, okay, well, I've rejected so many times, God so many times, how could God ever love me? Or maybe God doesn't realize what I've done previous to now. How could he ever love me? 
But that's not how God functions. James 2 says this, 2.5, Listen, my dear brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in, in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? Now, I don't think God goes around saying, okay, well, you, you are wealthy and you are not, so if you're wealthy, you're done for. That's not what this verse is talking about. What this verse is talking about is the boy in the corner who's experiencing a certain level of humility, who is poor in spirit, and who's going, I just need something more. I need God in my life. And that's what these verses are really talking about. And that's what God does for us in adoption as he reaches out to us and he pulls us into his family. So, what really happens? There's a difference between being a servant of God and a child of God. If you think about it, it's really kind of simple, I think. If, if you remember back when we talked about in the book of Esther, uh, there were certain things that people did not do. Uh, you didn't just run into the court of God or in the court of the king and expect maybe not to die. That's probably going to happen. Like that is a very dangerous thing for you to do. And if you're a servant, you're standing on the sidelines and you wait to be summoned. That's how servanthood works in the midst of the, of the king's present, presence. Sorry. But a child is a whole different story. And this is why this is important. When we are adopted into the, the king's family, we have unimpeded, undeterred access directly to the father. The father sits here with open arms and says, come to me. In fact, Jesus says that in, in the gospels. He says, come to me as what? Little children. It's like, come. I'm here with open arms you're not supposed to sit on the sidelines. You're not a servant. You're my child. Historically, if I could take you back to the first century Rome, uh, there were actually some larger families in Rome that had lots and lots of kids. Okay, that's not all that dissimilar today. But what makes it different is, uh, well, in a second I'll tell you what makes it different. And then there were some families that were very, very wealthy and had no children. And so here's what makes this different. People would choose to adopt out their own children to a wealthier family who has no children because they believe that it would be better. Life with them would be better than life with us. Now, that'll blow our categories, right? Because we don't really see adoption that way. I'm not looking to give my two girls up to anybody. It ain't gonna happen. But in those days, it was very, very different. In fact, there was a very high honor, it was a very high honor to be adopted into the, one of these Roman families. Now, I w it would even goes one step further. A lot of these families, and I, I think a lot, and I don't mean all necessarily, I'm not totally sure, but a lot of these families, you actually, as a biological kid, had to be adopted into the family to be an heir. So I tell you all this to say, adoption in this world was very, very important. And everything that came with adoption like, gets pushed up to the top. Like You get everything that a biological kid gets, in fact, more. 
And so back then, the most famous Roman adoptee was a guy named Octavian. He was 20 years old when he was adopted by Julius Caesar, okay? And later on became the ruler of the entire Roman kingdom. So if you think in some way that adoption is something less, I don't want you to think that way. Because if we think adoption is somehow less, then we're going to think that about being adopted into God's family. And that's simply not true. And that's not the way these people would understand adoption. These people would see adoption as a chance for a new life, a new family, a new identity, and ultimately a new father. All the things as Christians, we also get a new life, a new family, a new identity, and a new father. But some of us still struggle with this idea of adoption. Uh, this guy named Victor Cooligan, he put it like this. He said, adoption's only as good as the family doing the adopting, at least in human terms, right? And I would say in spiritual terms too. Some of us in this room may not have experienced uh, a great home life. Some of us would say, my father, eh, not so good. Maybe your father, your earthly dad, abandoned you. Maybe even abused you. Maybe your father was physically present, but not relationally or emotionally present. Maybe your father was harsh or demeaning. Uh, maybe you just felt unloved as a kid. If this has been your experience, I can see where that would be really challenging when you start thinking about adoption of God, you start placing these things upon that relationship. It's kind of like this. You, you kind of go into this idea of adoption by our Heavenly Father, and you just don't know. You don't know what to expect. You don't know what that looks like. It's kind of like if, if you were a kid, uh, maybe like a, a parent right now, and you're trying to discipline your children, but when you were a kid, you never got disciplined. That's a difficult thing to try to figure out, right? So it's a very similar thing here. If you had a bad experience with your father, you're going, why is it not going to be bad with this guy? Back in your brain, and you're thinking that. Well, this guy right here, this is my dad a long time ago. Back, color photos, barely. Uh, but that was my dad, and that's me. I was probably first or second grade. And my dad is amazing. He's an amazing guy that's been through a ton of really bad stuff. His mom abandoned their family. His dad had issues with alcohol, drank too much, was an alcoholic. Somehow, Jesus got a hold of my dad and revolutionized and changed his life, which in turn changed that guy's life right there. So I have nothing but good things to say about my dad. Amazing, amazing man who to this day I look up to. To this day I have conversations, spiritual conversations with him. I ask him questions and he's just a great grandpa. But my earthly dad is not my heavenly father. They're not the same. My heavenly father He's without sin. I can't say that about that guy right there. My heavenly father is without failure. 
I can't say that about my dad. My heavenly father is all-powerful and in control of everything in this universe. I definitely cannot say that about that guy. My heavenly father is the king. My dad's definitely not that. My heavenly father has, is, and always will be 100% fair and 100% just. I think he would admit that doesn't apply to him. My heavenly father keeps every single promise that he makes. I don't think that's true of that guy. And ultimately, that guy, that heavenly father, wants you, wants me. The kid in the corner with no hope, maybe who we used to be, or maybe that's who you are now. But that's the kind of father who offers adoption into his family. Hebrews 13 says that he will never leave us or forsake us. He won't. This guy is not going to abandon us. So how do we know that this is true? How do we, like all these things, they sound great, but how do we know that we're adopted? How do we know that that's actually happened for us? Well, let's look at these two passages here. One's in Ephesians. Ephesians 1, uh, verse 13, it says this. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and you believed in him, okay? So when you became a believer in Jesus, like your heart was transformed, you were redeemed, remember redemption, you were sealed with the promise, with the promised Holy Spirit, who is, here it is, the guarantee of inheritance, inheritance which comes from adoption, right? Until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory, And so the Holy Spirit comes into our lives as believers, as true believers, and he's that guarantee. Romans 8, also up there. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. I think you can look at your life and say, if I'm being led by the Holy Spirit, I can say that I'm a son of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. And the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit. I love that part right there. The Spirit himself bears witness to our spirit. The Holy Spirit that is in our lives, in our being, testifies that you have been adoption to your very soul, to the core of who you are. And then it goes on to say, Spirit bears witness to our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs of Christ. We belong. It's our identity. It's who we are. Adoption is extremely important that we understand that because that changes everything about our lives. All the things that we try to make the paramount in our life that we're trying to find our identity in that big list at the very beginning all go from here down. And what's the top thing? My relationship with Jesus, the idea that I've been redeemed, 
I've been justified, and now I've been adopted into the family of God. This is who I am. It's who I am. And if I know that this is who I am, then that changes everything else about my life. And we're going to get to that in just a second. So why is adoption important? That's a great question. Glad you guys asked. Galatians 4, 7 says this, So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir. So we are no longer slaves to sin. We're not like, like held hostage by our sin nature, but rather we are sons of God. We are heirs of God. Second one, all these are in your bulletin on that back sheet. That's why I put them in there because we're going to fly through these. Hebrews 12, we get a father who appropriately disciplines his, us as his children because he loves us. That's why he does it. Three, we will be like him. We will see him. We are children of God now, right now, and this identity drives us to purity and obedience. Let me read this verse, 1 John 3. See what kind of love that the Father has given to us, that we should be what called children of God. And so we are. Beloved, we, I love this, are God's children now. Not something that's going to come later on. Oh, someday I hope to be in the family of God. But right now, this is who you are. This is your identity. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as, a, as he is. Someday we will be without sin. The struggle for resisting temptation will not exist anymore. Because in that sense, we will be like God. Now, don't think that we will be God. That's a whole other thing. But like God in a sense of sin, sinlessness, absolutely. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he, is in, as he is pure. So if you have placed your hope in Jesus, if your identity is a child of God, then we naturally respond with obedience. We naturally respond with this desire to be pure like our Father is pure. Next one, uh, Romans eight seventeen. we are fellow heirs with Jesus. That's a whole sermon right there. We share in the suffering and glory of Jesus, Romans 8, 17, same passage. Galatians 3, we are children of the king. We don't relate to God as a slave or servant like we talked about earlier, but as a child. Ephesians 3, 12, we can boldly approach the Father First uh, John three one we are loved by the Father Psalm one o three thirteen to fourteen we are understood by our Father Matthew six thirty two we are cared for by our Father Matthew seven eleven we get the Father who gives us many good gifts and He takes care of us Luke eleven thirteen we get a Father who is who gives us the Holy Spirit to lead us. We get a father, according to 1 Peter 1, who gives us an inheritance in heaven. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his mercy, he has caused us to be born again to, to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, and kept in heaven for you. 
So the work of adoption requires all three persons of the Godhead. God the Son redeems us through this loving act of dying for us on the cross. God the Father advocates for us by coming to the court and saying, I adopt you. And the Holy Spirit affirms that action by communicating and testifying to our very soul. God at work through a miraculous thing in all of us. It's who we are. It's our identity. And we belong. We've been adopted into the very family of God, the creator of all, the all-powerful, all-knowing, sovereign king of everything is our dad. So what are you believing on a personal level, just you, when you're thinking about these things and you think about your relationship with God or lack of, do you believe the good news that God is the father who has brought you into his family or do you think it might be amazing to be a part of his family? Do you believe that you belong to God or is there something in the way that you feel like you just need to repent of? Do you, do you feel like uh, you have this new, this identity that maybe you haven't understood before? Like this is who you are and some things in your life could be adjusted as a result of this identity as a child of God. We should have automatically a renewed sense of God's grace for us, right? Like we should, look, we should hear these things and go, what an amazing God that would care for me. What a gracious, gracious gift is adoption for me. And the last thing is, we can now boldly come before the Father and we can boldly respond in obedience to the Father because we know that he loves us so much and we love him. Ephesians 5.1 says, Be imitators of God as beloved children. So obedience is try, not trying to earn God's favor. Obedience is not trying to get noticed and get stuck on team God. Obedience is a response of being adopted. It's who we are, and we respond that way. Communally, as Christians, because we're adopted into the family, we now have spiritual brothers and sisters. Now, I always thought that was a funny thing growing up uh, before I was a Christian. I'm like, hey, Brother Dan, hey, Brother... And I was like, that is so weird. But when I look at this, I go... That's reality. That is our identity. If you are in the family of God, then we are brothers and sisters in that family. We are siblings in that family. And we have this special bond. You've probably experienced it. When you encounter someone else who loves Jesus, you just know it. So let me give you a good example. I'll wrap this up. Uh, this last week on Thursday night was meet the teacher at my 
uh, kids' uh, elementary school. And uh, so Janelle and I went with the girls, and we met their new teachers. And my oldest daughter's teacher, we met her. And I had kind of heard around that maybe she was a Christ follower. And that's not always been the case for all the teachers that we've had so far. And so I was kind of excited about that. I was like, oh, this is going to be kind of cool. And so I had a conversation with her, and I said, so tell me, tell me like, how, how did you get started with teaching? And she kind of told me, yeah, I taught, you know, here for a while, and then I was at Trinity Christian. I taught there for a while. And she goes, but I haven't been teaching the last two years. I've been in Uganda with a nonprofit and leading Bible studies and telling people about Jesus. And I was like, ding, 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 ding. Like, this is a different thing. Like, this is a different person. And I was immediately going, I felt like we had this family relationship like that. And I said, I said, I know you're busy. We'll, I definitely want to talk to you more about this. This is pretty amazing. That's my kid's teacher this year. But I was so encouraged by that. And like I said, this connection as being part of the family to me was readily apparent. That connection crosses all kinds of crazy barriers of age, right? It crosses gender barriers, race barriers, geography barriers, and this is the cool one, time. So we have a special connection with all believers of all time. That'll blow your mind right there. And that's going to come someday when we encounter and we interact with those people. So how can we respond? How do we press into that family? How do we make those people, we raise the value of interacting with them and spending time with them? Because they are our spiritual brothers and sisters and we need each other. How do we do that? Last one, missional. We get to show the world who our Father really is. Our Heavenly Father. And all that huge list, we can share that with other people who want that. That's how we can leverage our lives through adoption into the lives of other people who just want to belong trying to find their identity in all these things that are just so empty and not lasting. They all fail us, every one of those. Only the Heavenly Father adopting us creates value and identity in our lives. Some of us need to do this. Now listen up. I've never said this before. Some of us need to foster or adopt kids. That's our missional response to this. What better picture of the loving father, remember that story, than for us to do that to a child who is in need? What better picture is that? I've been convicted by that. I don't know where that's going to go, but I've been convicted. I'm like, I've seen that. Um, my friend adopted two little boys, and I remember him talking about this in a sermon, about how impactful that was, and even as a father, to see this relationship happen and to understand that is him with God. 
What an amazing picture that is. And so we have an opportunity to jump into fostering or adoption. And if that's where your heart is, if that's what you're ready for, or if that's not what you're ready for, we should look at that together and figure it out. I want to help. Let me read this last verse here, Matthew 5. I think it sums this whole thing up well. It says, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others. I would translate that to say, show people that your adoption into the family of God means something. That would be a way to let your light shine before others. So that they may see your good works, okay, that's obedience, and give glory to what? Your Father, your adopted heavenly Father who is in heaven. That's this stuff at work missionally. And it only happens because of all the other things, redemption, justification, all the things we've been talking about for the last four, five, six weeks or whatever it's been. Adoption matters. It's a big deal. It changes our perspective on everything because now we understand that we belong to God.